It was July 23rd, and the Tigers were facing off against Mickey Mantle and the New York Yankees in a doubleheader at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. Famed Tigers broadcaster Ernie Harwell recalls that fateful July day. When, when I got through the game, I went out to the parking lot where the Tigers and, and the players and the executives and workers parked, and a policeman said, um, uh, how are you going home? There have been some problems. And I said, I'm going up Jefferson. He said, well, just keep going. Don't stop because... Uh, people are rioting, and it, it's a little uh, dangerous. While Harrell was up in the broadcast booth, pitcher Denny McLean was in the dugout. Both teams were observing an unusual sight north of the ballpark. Five miles away, the situation at 12th Street in Claremont was spiraling out of control. Well, we saw the smoke coming up over the over the left field uh, deck. The entire game, we saw the smoke. No one knew what it was. Jim Campbell, of course, had put a, had put the kibosh on telling anybody in the stadium. He uh, told everybody that had anything to do, anybody with knowledge of what was going on uh, north of the ballpark, that uh, they weren't supposed to say anything. Don't tell the crowd. Don't panic the crowd. Don't panic the players. Don't do anything like that. Let's get the doubleheader in and, and move on from there. So we were totally unaware. As Harwell and McLean left the stadium for their suburban homes, Tiger slugger Willie Horton was driving right into the heart of the disturbance. He lived just a few blocks away from the epicenter of the riot. I didn't know what was quite what was going on myself. All I know is it looked like it was a war. You know, you see a lot of riot burning and stuff. And all I'm just trying to think about, you know, Dr. King, you know, he died for opportunity to give us all opportunity. Seizing that opportunity, Horton, still fitted in his Tigers uniform, climbed atop the hood of his car and pleaded with the crowd for peace. It's just like yesterday to me, really. You know, it's like shit in my eyes. I can see myself getting in the car, and then I'm out there in the middle of the ride on top of my car trying to, you know, bring peace to the people. The uprising had grown in intensity, and Horton was unable to quell the mob. Instead, neighbors told him to leave so he wouldn't get hurt. Tigers outfielder Gates Brown lived in an apartment within earshot of where Horton stood. I mean, I'm seeing people running down the street with couches over their head, chairs, you know, stealing and breaking in the... The stores, and I also seen store owners with chairs standing in front of their businesses, with shot with guns, shotguns, or whatever, protecting their business too. So, you know, I mean, I was there. I was in the middle of it. Denny McLean made it home safely to Bingham Farms that night, but stayed glued to the television and radio. He says news outlets made it sound like the violence could easily spread into the surrounding suburban areas. He prepared accordingly. I know that night or, or the next couple of nights. You know, we all stayed at home, and uh, I had uh, relatives in from out of town that weekend, and and we stayed up all night, Sunday and Monday night, with guns in our laps. Uh, We didn't know how bad it was going to be because there were so many horrible, horrible radio rumors. Uh, You know, uh, they're moving to the country or going out to the suburbs. Uh, Guys with guns have been spotted going out on the John Lodge. While race relations were at a crisis point in the city, Many players from the Tigers organization say race in the clubhouse was not an issue during that time. Willie Horton says that a majority of the players from that era still stay in contact with each other to this day. We didn't have no problem. We had a very uh, black and white guys understand each other. And I don't think personally we ever looked at the color of the skin. We did a lot of things together at each other's home and when we traveled. Denny McLean shares that sentiment. I went to school in the south side of Chicago. I can tell you about racism. Um... You know, there weren't many guys that uh, came to the major leagues that came from the background that I came from in the south side of Chicago. And uh, what I saw in our clubhouse was hardly racist. 
That clubhouse harmony existed despite the fact that the Tigers organization was not historically a cornerstone of racial equality. Walter Briggs, who owned the team from 1935 to 1952, refused to allow black players on the team. For years, black baseball fans weren't even allowed to sit in the box seats at Tiger Stadium. Gates Brown says that legacy of racism in the sport has had an impact on the city. Even to this day, you, you know, you hear the old-time black people say things that uh, derogatory thing that Walter Briggs said about black. Even to this day, you find a whole lot of black folks that aren't too particularly keen on the Detroit Tigers just because of that. The day after the riots began, Brown and the Tigers took to the road for an extended 15-day trip. When they returned, several players ventured out into the city to assist in the healing process by working with kids at baseball parks and speaking at community functions. For the rest of the summer, the team would continue to grind it out in the competitive American League. In September, the race went right down to the wire. Ernie Harwell gives the play-by-play. And eventually it came down to uh, the Tigers in Minnesota and uh, the Boston Red Sox. And the Tigers lost on the last day when uh, McAuliffe hit into a double play. The uh, Red Sox had already beaten Minnesota at Fenway, and they were listening to the radio, our account of the game, and heard about that, and then they were able to celebrate their 67 uh, pennant. But the Tigers were in it and uh, had a good chance. The problem was they ran into doubleheaders back-to-back the last two days, and if uh, they had done better than splitting those two doubleheaders, it would have been a different story. The team ended the season only one game back of the Red Sox with a record of 91 wins and 71 losses. Boston won the American League pennant. Detroit had to wait until 1968. This is John Farrow.